0: Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 45, Psalm 45, and we'll commence there at the superscription. Hear once again the Word of our God. To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashkil, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made, touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. We take up Psalm 45 once again, and we do so, as we said from the very beginning, reminding ourselves that this is a psalm about the King, that is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The, psalm, the psalmist has in view the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that from the psalm itself. We see that as we look at the epistle of Hebrews. Now, as we look at this text then, and we look at the verses that we've seen up to this point, particularly verses 2 and 3, we have really our introduction to this king. We find that this king, his lips, are receptacles of grace. Of course, and that means then that as a receptacle, he is to pour grace from his lips. We're told also that his sword, well, his sword is in the hand, his hand, which is mighty. This sword is wielded effectually. His lips drop grace. The sword is wielded with power. We're told that this king is fairest of all the sons of men, fairer than any man, mightier than any. Now, as we look at this text, coming to the fourth verse, it's important for us to note that the psalmist really is not changing his theme. Those ideas continue through our own text this night, and, and as they do, the form in which they come to us also continue. You remember verse 3 is an exhortation from the psalmist. This is a cry, this is, if you will, the cry of a saint to his Savior. That cry begins in the third verse with those words, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, and continues into our text tonight. And so, what is the exhortation? Well, first of all, you have the words, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. The idea there is, is that this is temporally consecutive, meaning what he is saying is essentially is this, after the sword is girded on thy thigh, then in thy majesty ride prosperously. What's striking here is he is calling, of course, for the Lord to put upon his sword... And then after he has done so, to ride prosperously. And the sense here is, of course, he is doing so with the sword with which he's girded. And note there, he's calling for the Lord to ride prosperously. With this sword that he's taken upon his thigh, the psalmist is pleading, let the sword have success. But then it continues. Our text reads, because of truth and meekness... And righteousness, that preposition there, because really it could be translated more like by or in. So by truth, meekness, and righteousness. And then as you come to the very last part of our text, the third line, the exhortation turns really into a promise. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. The right hand, of course, in the scriptures is the hand of power, the hand of favor. And then he says here, it shall teach. The word there could be translated instruct or even show. Your right hand will set forth, will show to you here fearful or terrible things. The word fearful there is the same kind of idea that's behind Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, the Psalmist is saying, as you ride, as you ride prosperously with your sword in meekness, in truth, meekness, and righteousness, Awesome things, and I mean that in the proper sense of the word, truly awesome things will be shown. Now, so we could interpret then or translate it thus: Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty, thy glory and thy majesty. Then in thy majesty ride victoriously in thy truth, meekness, and righteousness, and in thy right hand shall show fearful, powerful things. Now, friend, we could leave it there, but there's something striking in the text that doesn't immediately strike us in our translations. As you look at the fourth verse, you'll notice here that there is a call, call for the Lord to ride prosperously because, or as we said, by truth, meekness, and righteousness. There's a word that's left untranslated in our text, but it's in the Masoretic. The word is devar. And I only mention that to you, friend, because it is a word that is crucial. The word devar is in all of the manuscripts, all of the texts, and even in older English translations than our own is present. It's the word for word. As you read the text then, it reads something like this, literally, in the word of truth, meekness, And righteousness. It is the word of truth, meekness, and righteousness that the psalmist has in view when he calls Christ to ride victoriously. It's a striking thing. And so the sense is this as we look at this text, it reaffirms for us in many ways what we said before. The psalmist's focus in verses 3 and now verse 4 is upon that sword that is Christ's word. That word here described as truth, as its content being truth, meekness, and righteousness. And we're told then, as we come to that very last line of our text this evening, that by this word of truth, meekness, and righteousness, wondrous things will be performed. Awesome works will be wrought, and so if we wanted to paraphrase these three, these two verses, verses three and four, it would be something like this: Go to battle with thy glorious, majestic word, Almighty One, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. In this word, thy word of truth, meekness, and righteousness, and by it set forth God's glory. Friends, friend, as we look at this text then before us, this is a text that teaches us much. Of course, much about Christ, but also much about the primary instrument he will use as he rides prosperously, as he does secure victory. And that, of course, leads us to the word of God. Our theme then from this text is very basic. It is just that Christ's word is the principal means to behold Divine majesty. Christ's word is the principal means to behold divine majesty. This word of truth, meekness, and righteousness by which awesome, wondrous things are effected. And as we look at this text, there are really three things that the psalmist sets out to us regarding this word. He provides for us really a survey of its character, its content, and even the consequences that this word has as it's wielded by Christ. And so I want us to look, first of all, at the character of the word. As you look at the beginning of our text, we're told here that the psalmist exhorts Christ to do thus, Then, or, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. We remember that that third verse refers to the sword of Christ as a majestic sword. That is that object of majesty that the psalmist has in view in the text preceding. And you have to remember, of course, that the psalmist is then continuing that theme. So as we come to verse 4, the idea of majesty either is speaking of the sword itself, that which he's already described as being majestic, or he is speaking about the manner in which that sword is wielded. It is wielded in majesty, or the psalmist exhorts Christ to wield it majestically but regardless of how we see it whether the psalmist is here speaking about the majesty of the sword in Christ's hand or in the manner in which Christ uses that sword the sense really is still the same the wielding of this sword by the hand of Christ is a thing of majesty it is a true truly majestic thing And friend as we look at verse 3 as we looked at verse 3 last lords day evening I don't want to revisit all of the, all of those things that we discussed, but I would just remind you that, that when we think about the majesty of the Word of God, we think about it in two ways. We think about its intrinsic majesty, and we think about its effective majesty. We think about its intrinsic majesty in that the thing itself, the Word of God itself, holds forth wonderful truths. But We're also mindful that God in His grace is pleased to use this word wonderfully to produce effects that are genuinely awesome, truly transformative, and surprising. And so when we come to our text, where the psalmist longs to see Christ wield this sword in majesty, friend, we have to recognize that we're being instructed here. We're being instructed to think about the word of God and its use in a way very different than the world, very different than our own flesh would. What do I mean by that? The psalmist says, This is a thing of majesty. Christ with sword in hand. The word of God, its use is majestic. The world, the world sees, as the apostle writes, that it's something like foolishness. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish. Foolishness. Beloved, how far are we even from Amos' day? with regard to Christ's use of his word. You remember the prophet goes to Israel. He comes bearing the word of God. He comes as one speaking with the spirit of Christ, as Peter tells us. And here is the response of that generation. O thou seer, go. Flee they away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there, not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. You see what he's saying. The word of God is not fit for the king's court. It's not a thing of majesty. It's not a thing of glory. It's something that belongs really to the back of society. Something that belongs to people like the Judahites, that are really just religious fanatics. Not, not for a world so refined as we, and certainly not for a king so majestic as ours. Now, friend, when the psalmist thinks of Christ taking up his sword, his sentiment is entirely different. It is majestic. It is a thing of splendor to him when Christ unsheathes, as it were, his word. And, beloved, as we look at this text, you see how the godly, the godly reiterate this same sentiment all throughout the scriptures. I'll take you just to Psalm 119. Is the word fit for the court of the king? Is the word a thing of majesty when Christ takes it up? Here the psalmist says, Thy testimonies are wonderful. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. They are the rejoicing of my heart. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. You see how the psalmist, his affections for the word are tied to it. Almost inextricably. He looks, he looks at the word of God as something majestic, something worthy of his affection, something that's better unto him than thousands of gold and silver. In thy majesty, ride prosperously. Take up that word that is in thy right hand, that thing of majesty, and wield it, wield it in splendor. A friend, this, of course, begs the question, are we a people who have this self-same sentiment? Is Christ using his word among us a thing of majesty? Friend, uh, you think about the proclamation of Christ's word through the running centuries. You think about it at the time of the Reformation, in Scotland specifically. When the word of God came there and came there in power, you remember that pulpits had to be erected in place of altars. And when these pulpits were erected in the the middle of the meeting house, the pulpit on its side always had an hourglass. And the hourglass was to be turned twice in the course of a sermon. And if the minister failed to turn the hourglass twice because he had finished his sermon before that, if he had finished his sermon before he had turned the hourglass the second time, there would be public uproar. I want you to think about that just for a moment. The the Reformation, of course, was a mighty work of God. And how did that manifest? It manifested itself among the people of God with such a great hunger that they felt themselves, as it were, as it were poorly treated if the proclamation of it was shortened. It's a striking thing, isn't it? And you compare our own sentiments today. But beloved, this is precisely the kind of thing the psalmist has in view. When Christ takes up his word, when he takes up this sword, it's a majestic thing. It's something awesome, really, in its fullest sense. Something that he longs to see and to be under. And so, friend, that brings us to the content of this word. We're told here that it is a word of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Now, as we look at those three descriptors, the first is truth. In the scriptures, that can be translated something like stability or faithfulness. Meekness has within it the idea of humility or condescension. And righteousness very naturally has behind it the idea of justice. Putting this all together, the idea is that this word of Christ, his sword, that by which he rides prosperously, is a sure word. A sure word of meekness and of justice. And friends, we remember from our time last Lord's Day evening, this is really a description of the entire word of God. And how apt is it? A sure word... (laughs) a sure word of meekness and of justice. Now friend, I want you to think about these three descriptors with me just for a moment. Take that first, that truth or firmness and stability. The idea behind that is is very simple. It's one that, that we all know very well. That is that when God speaks, God speaks truth. The idea there is, of course, that that God will not allow any of his words to fall to the ground. If it is in this book, if it is in sacred scripture, you and I, we can rest our lives upon its truthfulness. It is a sure, it is a stable word. We know that. These are things that, of course, we speak about one with the other, quite freely. My friend, have you ever thought much lately on how profound that is? Friend, what I mean by this is, as you think about this text, every time you and I come to it, whether in private worship, in our families, in corporate worship, any time that you and I draw near to it, our heart should be, this is a sure word. Whatever it promises to me, it will certainly come to pass. Whatever it threatens, it will certainly come to pass upon those whom the threat falls. To to, to illustrate this even further, what I mean by this friend is the believer could really take up this book and he can say one day, because this book says it is so, one day I will remember that time when Christ said to multitudes, stand at my left hand and to others, stand at my right. Just as I remember yesterday, one day I will remember that day. I will hear those words with my own hearing, just as I heard that conversation yesterday. Just as real, just as certain. One day I will remember it just as I now remember yesterday that Christ said to some, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And to others, enter into my Father's kingdom. As certain as yesterday is in my mind, so also will those things be fulfilled. Oh, beloved, when you and I take up this word with that kind of heart, I think we will be a different people. When that's the kind of thing that we remind ourselves when we come under the preaching of this word, when we read it in our homes, privately, in our families how differently differently would we read those texts? How differently would we read every text? How differently would we read Job's words? I shall see God. Beloved, this is a sure word. The word that Christ wields, that word by which he rides prosperously through the world is a certain word. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, that next descriptor is really striking, isn't it? This is a word he says of meekness. Friend, just contemplate for a moment how striking that word is in this context. We're speaking of a prince that is illustrious and peerless in every regard. I mean, friend, think of what we've just said beforehand. He is fairer than the sons of Adam. And this one is peerless in his majesty and in his strength. This this is a king of kings and lord of lords. This is one of great power and of great glory. And yet the psalmist at this point speaks strikingly about this word as it is a word of meekness. A word of condescension. Friend, does that strike you? It's a striking thing that this illustrious prince has a word that is not only true and not only righteous, but is in some sense a word of condescension and meekness. What does that mean? Friend, you could take it in two ways. You could take the meekness Described here is describing really the manner in which the Word of God comes to us. What do we mean by that? Well, when we think about the Word of God, Calvin very helpfully reminds us that the Word of God is, as it were, baby talk to men. A God of omniscience. A God of infinite knowledge. Condescending to come down and speak to us in His Word. And so the Word must be condescended. It must come down to our very low, low level. What does Calvin's phrase mean? Let me illustrate it this way. Friend, you and I, we we spend a lot of time in the Word of God. And, And sometimes we'll find ourselves stuck on a particular text. And so we will devote days to that text. We'll pull out the Greek and the Hebrew lexicons. We'll we'll labor with all kinds of commentators. The panoply of old and of alive commentators are brought before us. and, And we spend days and weeks, hours, we spend years on a particular text. And when we come to the end of that text, when we feel we've finally got some sense of it, then, friend, it's right for us to remember what I've just said to you. This is a word of condescension. Calvin would say to the man, you've mastered just the alphabet. Oh, beloved, when you think of what the word of God has and its bottomless depth, then I think we understand how humble we should be as we take it up. I mean, the preacher can sometimes find himself in his study laboring just to find one unique insight. He'll spend all of his labors, hours upon hours, days upon days, laboring over that one thing. And then whenever he has it, the temptation to pride is certainly there. But if he remembers this, and this is a word condescended, he'll remember he's not even touched the foothills of what is here. Not even the foothills. My predecessor, I was told just recently, who preached the entire word of God and belongs to a very small number of people who can say they've done that. When he closed his ministry, he said to one that he felt as though he hardly dusted the cover of this book. And oh, friend, how right is that sentiment? This is a word of condescension. If we master what is here Friend, it would take really an eternity and still our finite minds would still be stretching, straining at the foothills. What is here? But I think more narrowly this word meekness refers not just to the manner but really to the matter that is contained in this word. It is a word of meekness because it communicates to us the meekness and the condescension of the king that we have in view. And oh friend, this is where you and I should be like blind Bartimaeus, crying out that the Lord would give us sight. We know of pride. We know of the boasting of princes. We know we know of we know of the hubris of men. But to see such an illustrious prince come and say Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. How much do we know of that? How much do we know of that kind of condescension? Friend, you and I, we we would marvel. We would marvel if some great politician stooped down and gave part of his wealth to a homeless man. But that doesn't even come close to the infinite condescension we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if we took up the word of God and we read the 11th of Matthew where those words are found, we contemplated how illustrious, how fair, how beautiful a prince we have in front of us to hear then these words, for I am meek and lowly in heart. I wonder if we could ever read to the thirtieth verse without tears. This is the word that Christ brings. A word that presents a Christ who comes pleading with sinners, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. A word that cries out, Come, even to the lowliest. And you say, Well, that was Christ and is a state of humiliation. Friend, do you remember? You remember how the writer of the Hebrews puts it to us? He is still not ashamed to call us brothers. He said, I don't see the connection. Friend, think of those whom the Lord calls brothers today. He called Zacchaeus a brother. He called a crooked man, such as he, even a brother. Did he not call Manasseh a brother when he saved him? a wicked and a vile king, now made penitent. Did he not take a murderous Saul and make him the apostle and call him brother? Did he not take a harlot, call her his own? Did he not take all kinds of sinners? Did he not take men and women of our number who are unfit for the least mercy and call them brethren? Beloved, if he's done so, we should marvel that this word is still holding out to us, the meekness of Christ. If he's still saying, come unto me, still crying for them to come, to take his yoke yoke upon them, to take rest from his hand. Oh, then, beloved, remember this. This word holds out to us a Christ whose condescension for our sakes, for his glory, something of great marvel. But we're also told that this word is also a word of justice, a word of righteousness. And and we could say that this, of course, relates to the former in that it offers the righteousness of God for sinners. That, of course, through justification, by grace through faith. And that would be legitimate. But, friend, it's also important to remember that this word is the word of Christ even as it speaks of judgment. This is a word of justice that Christ brings to the world. Is not my word like fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. I will punish you in this place that ye may know that my words shall surely stand against you for evil. This too is spoken, as the Apostle Peter tells us, with the spirit of Christ. Friend, this is a word of justice as well. And friend, remember that. Remember that the writer here in our text longs for this word to be unsheathed. This is part of Christ riding prosperously, that He would take this and wield it. And so then, what do we make of that last point? This riding prosperously. And so we come to our third and our final point, the consequence of this word. Friend, as you look at this text, you'll notice that the beginning of our fourth verse begins, of course, with a petition. It's ride prosperously. It's part of the exhortation of the third verse. But then as he closes, as we've already said, he says, Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. The initial line is a petition. The second line is a promise of certain success. The sense is so very basic. If Christ rides with this sword in hand, he shall prosper. Oh, beloved, that teaches us, doesn't it? That Christ's victorious use of his word is certain. As he unsheathes this sword, victory is ensured. And so take Isaiah 49. Gentiles, as we read there, shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. This majestic word, this word of truth, meekness, and righteousness, this word will bring light to the nations, kings to the brightness. Of the Lord's rising. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. And from the river even unto the ends of the earth. Says Psalm 72. Speaking again of Christ. And why is that? What will be the manifestation? That the world is finally submitted to Christ. And what will be the means? Well the means we've already said before. Is this word. It is by this word of truth, meekness and righteousness. That Christ will ride prosperously. But friend remember what we read from Matthew 28. All authority has been given unto me. Why? Well, friend, of course, that the gospel might be preached. We understand that. But remember Christ's argument with his apostles. The command to go out to the nations. The command to send this word. That Christ, by his preaching, that it would be known to the, to the Gentiles who were yet in darkness, The grounds for that command lies in this, that all authority has been given to him over those nations. And so, friend, how would they be brought under this dominion, under this scepter, willingly? How would they come to recognize this kingship? Matthew 28 tells us it would be through the preaching of his ministers with Christ's presence that would do this. And beloved, what does that look like? When Christ takes up his sword in this way, presses his interests into the nations, rides prosperously through with this word. My friend, it looks like this. It's a text I've quoted to you so very often. It's from 1 Corinthians 14. When Christ takes up his sword in this way, the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Beloved, that is a picture of Christ riding prosperously. And the blessed promise is that one day, all of the nations will know that by experience. This word of truth, this sure word, this word of meekness which offers mercy to sinners, This word of justice that offers righteousness through Jesus Christ and also promises justice in all things. Friend, in the hand of Christ, one day this word will cause the nations to fall down and worship God. Now, beloved, if all of these things are true, there are several points of application that we can't miss. The first is, of course, what is our posture toward this word? this word that is such a powerful instrument, majestic instrument in the hand of Christ. The first question is, do we tremble at this word? I don't think we think about that too often, especially not as Christians. Uh, we're told that this is not a word that should elicit trembling from us by so many, but, but I just remind you of the words of the prophet. The poor and the contrite spirit are described by the prophet there as those trembling at the Lord's word. The majesty of this word the awesomeness of the word itself as it conveys the glory of God to them produces trembling. And then, friend, not only does it do that, but it also leads the godly to entrust themselves to it. The psalmist says, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. The believer then, when he looks at this word, he trembles at it and hopes in it. And so the question is, do we see the word of God as the psalmist presents it to us even this evening? A word of majesty, a word, a sure word, a word of mercy and a word of truth and righteousness. If so, beloved, we will tremble and we will rejoice. We will be numbered among those who are contrite under it and those who have have been caused to hope in it. And so, friend, as we close, look at the psalmist here. What is his great petition? What is the petition, the cry of the saint to his Savior? Friend, the cry is this. Take up this sword and ride prosperously. Beloved, is that our cry this evening? Do we long for Christ to take up this word of truth, meekness, and righteousness, and to wield it effectively, to produce wonderful things? Well then, friend, take this as your exhortation to cultivate that more and more in your own hearts. This is what we sing to our God. This is the plea that the believer has. For God's glory... For the good of the church, gird thy sword on thy thigh, take up this word, and ride prosperously. May we be such people who have that cry, even this evening. Amen.